All right. Well, we're going to dive in because I want to finish this one today. But this is a good, uh, I, I, I hope this was a blessing last week. I think last week, if you were here, we basically just talked about, um, uh, hold on. <laughs> in my head, I'm going, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, first, second. Okay, Hebrews, James. There we go. Uh, we're in James 3 and 4, if you want to open your Bibles to James 3 and 4. That's kind of the, the text that we're springing off from. I mean, we're, we're all over the place. But we've been talking about... Conflict resolution, and uh, these are just kind of <clears throat> rails or guide, uh, uh, guide a, a guide for helping us uh, within the home uh, to uh, not only to resolve conflict and to work towards reconciliation, all that, but also to, to retrain our minds to see what conflict is, where it comes from, why God would allow it, what's the purpose of it in this life, all that kind of stuff. And so if you missed last week, we're going to do a real quick just run through, um, and I'll tell you the blanks, but we're going to basically pages one through three, we're going to fly through this morning, and you you can go back and listen to it if you want a more in-depth thing. But I want to get to the actual work of conflict resolution, because last week we talked more about the why stuff, and then this week I want to talk about the what to do. So... But I am going to read a few of these things. At the very beginning, uh, at the very top of the first page, it says, we must have godly communication in order to resolve conflict and have relational intimacy in the home. So we talked about uh, uh, godly or or good communication um, uh, practices a couple of weeks ago. And and part of that, in order to have conflict resolution, you have to be able to to communicate uh, in a a godly way. Disunity in the home can stem from personal difference, preference, offense, physical, verbal conflict, uh, relational conflict is not condoned by God. However, relational conflict is purposed by God to produce humility, selflessness, submission, unity, love, and ultimately Christ-likeness. We can say that definitively because the Lord says that in his word. This is what all trials, testing, suffering, those sort of things are purposed for for the believer. You know, Romans 8 says it's going to work out for our good, and then he defines what that good is, that he will... Uh, um, that we will be glorified together with Christ, that he will make us like Christ. Uh, in James uh, 1, 2 through 4, talks about all testing is purpose to uh, cause endurance and patience, which makes us perfect, or, uh, perfect, lacking nothing, complete. I can't remember the words, but, but basically Christ-likeness. It's always Christ-likeness. That's, that's the goal. So he's always sanctifying us. He's always making us like Christ. And it takes trial, suffering, turmoil in this life. Sometimes that comes from our own sinfulness. Sometimes that comes from the pressure around us. Sometimes that just happens because of circumstances like what we just prayed for. All that being said, we know that there is perfect purpose in all of it, uh, and that is to make us like Christ if we belong to him. So all that being said, we talked last week, like I said, about uh, the, the big picture and what's behind that. The first blank, if you have your, your sheet there, our James 3, 1 through 12 proves that our words are powerful and dangerous. Again, coming out of the communication stuff, uh, words are very powerful. Words can be very dangerous. Words can also be very encouraging, edifying, and uplifting and cause people uh, to, to know Christ, to, to, to grow in Christ. But James warns us about our words, which you need to think through before you open your mouth with your spouse or in the home, with your children, whoever it may be. Um, then we talked about uh, James 3.13 through 4.3, which is really foundational for understanding where does conflict come from uh, and why. And James 3, uh, the, the blank there is the wisdom of heaven and hell. So James really just tells us uh, two different kinds of wisdom. And basically, uh, the wisdom from above, he says, is pure, peaceable, considerate, submissive, merciful, good, full of good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. Uh, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so that's what we're called to be, is we want to be peacemakers. Those who belong to God and are living according to his wisdom and his truths are going to be founded on this, uh, uh, this plane uh, where they are striving in those ways. But, he says, on the other hand, before that, uh, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, these, um, he says, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. So if that's where you're starting from, you don't, don't be arrogant. You're never going to start from that place and glorify the Lord. In fact, you are starting from a place that's only going to cause what we read here. He says, this wisdom is not coming down from above. This is earthly, natural, and demonic. So this is how... This is how society runs. This is what naturally comes to you in your sinfulness, and this is from Satan. Uh, He says, uh, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil practice. 
So again, in your communication or in your relationship with your children, with your spouse, with whoever it may be, if you're starting at a place of selfishness, pride, envy, jealousy, ambition, those sort of things, well, nothing is going to come from that that is going to be glorifying to the Lord. It's all self-centered, and it's all driven by the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of life, and ultimately it's demonic is what he's saying. And so then he says in one. so what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? And he just straight says it. It's your pleasures. They're waging war within you. You lust, you can't have, you're willing to murder. You're envious, you can't obtain, you fight and quarrel. That's where conflict comes from. It's, it's in us, it's our desires, it's what we want. And rather than trusting the Lord and waiting, trusting the Lord and giving up, trusting the Lord and preferring someone else, we take things into our own hands and we decide we're going we're gonna to get what we want. So on the next page, we talked about the presuppositions for conflict. And again, I'm just going to kind of read through these so we can keep moving. But the presuppositions for conflict, letter A, relational conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen. Uh, letter B, Many conflicts can be prevented. Um, So it is inevitable. Uh, It's going to happen. But there's many things that we can do to prevent uh, the majority of relational conflict. Letter C, pursuing peace with one another is not optional. If we are Christians, we're called to pursue peace. And again, those are some wonderful scriptures to remind you of that. That this is not only uh, what we are in Christ and what we've been equipped to do, but we then have an imperative command by the Lord to make peace in all things. I'm sorry. Uh, many conflicts can be prevented. Yeah, I'm flying. <laughs> if you weren't here last week. <laughs> I tell you what, next week I'll bring in the copies with all the blanks in them. So. But I'm just trying to get to page four. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, it's, it's recorded. <laughs> Letter D, conflict can be beneficial. I'll slow down on the blanks. <laughs> Letter D, C was not optional. Pursuing peace with one another is not optional. And then letter D, conflict can be beneficial. Like I said, I'm sorry, if you weren't here last week, we did this last week. (laughs) Uh, It is beneficial. And again, it goes back into purpose, and it tells you there it's just some of the benefits of conflict. All right, flip over on the next page. The next blank is God's purpose for conflict. God's purpose. So why? Why would the Lord allow conflict in the home of two children of God that love him, that want to honor him and please him? Well, letter A, we know that God allows conflict to reveal our character. So one of the things that's going to happen in a time of pressure or testing, uh, you're not, you're, you're, your desires aren't being met, They're, you're put in a place where whatever it is you're receiving is not what you wanted or uh, um, you can't get what you do want. Um, and so what it does is it reveals our character. We talked about 1 Corinthians uh, 10, uh, 1 and 11. You know, this is talking uh, about the church, um, and so Paul says, within the church, there should be no divisions among you. We should be of the same mind, the same judgment. We, we're being made complete. Um, and uh, so that, that's, that's what should be taking place. We should be reconciling. We should be loving one another, forgiving one another, growing together in Christ. And at the same time, if you keep reading, there's all kinds of conflict in the church in Corinth. There's all kinds of selfishness, pride, different things happening. So in 1 Corinthians 11, he at the same time says... You know, if one's inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice. This is what we do. And then he goes on to say, uh, I hear that divisions exist among you. I believe it. For there must also be factions among you. And here's the purpose. So that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, there should be no disunity or factions amongst us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And at the same time, the Lord will allow division to prove who does submit to him and belong to him and who does not. And so, that being said, it will happen. Now, same thing within the home. There should be no factions in our home, no disunity. There should be unity, especially if there's believers in the home. But things will arise that will cause everyone who truly is his to see things within them that have to go. Pride, selfishness, uh, things like that that have to go. And and, um, and, and many times it it proves, uh, uh, you know, where we are in the faith. Letter B, God allows conflict to test our faith. Again, we talked about this last week, just purpose behind it, 1 Peter 1, Romans 5. These are wonderful scriptures to memorize and to remind yourself in the midst of affliction, temptation, testing, trials, suffering, what the Lord is doing. Um, Again, the Lord allows trials. He allows these things so that in 1 Peter, he says, uh, we may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we go through testing in this life. 
so that we're refined and we remain with him and we're glorified together with him when he returns. Romans 5 says, affliction brings about perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Hope isn't put to shame uh, because of the love that he has poured out in us. And, and so it, it, it's, the, it's the, the refining and approving of his children. And then letter C, God allows conflict to make us more like Christ. That's always the purpose. In the end, every hardship Every amount of suffering that we go through, every trial, every circumstance that we wish wasn't happening uh, for comfort's sake or for ease's sake is for the Christian purpose to drive them towards Christ-likeness. That's always what he's doing. And so if you can just pull back and go, I know that's why this has happened. doesn't mean you don't have to walk through it. doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. doesn't mean it's not going to be uh, uh, distress. Uh, uh, stressful and, and hard and all those sort of things, but you know the purpose, and you're able to call for him for strength to keep running towards Christ in the midst of it, even though you're in the pressure. I think we did this one too, right? Did we finish? We, we did three last week, right? Yeah. Okay, so number three is the source of conflict, and this goes back to what we talked about in James 4, the source of the conflict. The first thing to remember is you are the source of the conflict every time. We are the source. You know, anytime you think, this person is the problem in my life. Well, first thing, the only reason you have a problem is because of you. And secondly, that person, even if they're there purposefully just to bring about harm and try to kill you, even that was purposed by God for your Christ-likeness. You know? and, and, uh, and so, again, we have to remember that, that that person is allowing you to be tested in your patience, your kindness, uh, not reviling when being reviled, not fighting back and, and defending yourself. I mean, all of those things that are like Christ, that person is allowing you the opportunity to be able to practice those things. The only time you've got to bear up with others is when others are hard to bear, right? The only time you've got to be patient with someone else is when someone is provoking you. The only time you've got to forgive somebody is when they sin against you. So if you want to be like Christ, everything that you have to practice to be like Christ will require someone else to, to do something that... Call, that, that, that the opposite would be that you stand up for yourself, defend yourself, fight for your rights, fight for your whatever it is, and you lay those things aside and you love the other person instead. You prefer them over yourself. So in other words, every amount of the fruit of the Spirit, every amount of Christ-like character, all the things that we're called to practice, they require, they require sin in order to be practiced. And most of the time they require someone that you love dearly and closely to sin against you in order to be practiced. So just remember that. If you keep praying for Christ to sanctify you and to make you more like him, then what did you expect? <laughs> that's the path, you know? And that's the, that's the pathway of love. It's, it's, and it's not a terror. That's, that's what we want. It's just that we don't realize a lot of times that's how we, you know, again, you think like a, I always think of like music, baseball, I don't know, some sport. You got to work hard. You want to be the best? You got to work hard. You want to you make the team? You got to work hard. And, and working out hurts. Practicing music hurts. It takes a lot of time. It's frustrating. But, but if you want to get good at something, it, it hurts and it's hard. But then we think like, oh, well, to be like Jesus Christ, we'll just pray and it'll happen magically. And it's like, that, why don't we apply the same principle to our walk with Christ? The Bible does. We've got to be soldiers. Uh, you know, we've got to fight for these things. So we have to understand, I mean, when we're asking for the Lord to refine us, to change us, to make us to love him more and to be like him, that's it. That's the pathway. The pathway to holiness is always through suffering. Uh, letter A, pride is the source, the first source of conflict. Self-glorification is the blank. Self-glorification. So rather than being determined to glorify Christ, uh, for him to be exalted in this situation, to live in a way that will bring him honor and glory, we're like, hey, someone didn't show me the honor I think I deserve. You know, that, that, that's a basic human right that I am being neglected here and, and we stand up for ourselves or we, you know, we fight for ourselves. And then uh, letter B is selfishness, which is self-gratification. So either one, it, 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 it presses against, you know, our, our honor, honor uh, our glory, our desire to be respected or to be known or to have a good reputation. And so we're willing to, to bend or to, to, to sin in order to, receive that, you know, um, or uh, our self-gratification. There's something we want, and we can't get it. Um, and again, we, we talked about that last week. And so we said, oh, and then we talked about, if you flip the next page, the progression of an idol. Again, 
Some of these things aren't a bad thing to desire. You may desire for your children to be born again. You may desire for your spouse to love you. You may desire for your children and your family to have unity. But if, if that desire becomes the main thing, then you'll be willing to sin to get something even good. You know, Many people compromise their understanding of the word and their theology in order to get their child into heaven mentally. Does that make sense? And that's where most people's theology breaks. They have sound theology until someone really close to them either once professed Christ, walked away from the faith, and then died, and they can't, they can't cope with the fact that their, their son or their daughter is in hell, and so they change what they believe to get them into heaven. Um, or, you know, you, you want your spouse to love you or your children to love you or something like that, and so you're willing to compromise truth, you're willing to compromise conviction in order to receive that thing temporarily, uh, when ultimately you're making a huge sacrifice um, and, and you're turning something else into an idol and you're w- willing to do whatever to get that thing rather than to cling to Christ. And so we talked about this whole progression of an idol. A desire goes to something you think you deserve. Uh, and then that goes, since you deserve it, then eventually you will demand that thing because you deserve that thing and it is being withheld from you. And if you demand it and you're not receiving, then you stand in judgment over your brother or your sister or your spouse or your children or whoever it is. Uh, and then eventually you punish. So you fight fire with fire. This is, you're receiving this, well, then I'm going to give that back. You're being reviled, then I'm going to revile them. They're saying something about you, you slander them. And so you, there's something out there. Usually that's a reputation thing. Uh, because, again, if you're not concerned about your reputation, someone slanders you, well, then that's fine. You just expect that. That's what's going to happen. But but if you think that everyone is supposed to, to, to always honor you and always love you, and you hear of people not doing that, then that's going to provoke you every single time. You have to understand. Think about this. I mean, do you think people are always walking around saying good things about you? Do you think they all go home and they're like, oh, man, you know, I just love everything they say all the time? No. Is that what you do? And again, I'm not condoning evil here. I'm just saying it shouldn't shock us when we find out someone was talking about us. It shouldn't shock us when we find out that, that maybe something we said hurt somebody else. And we always need to be willing and, and ready to first ask for forgiveness if we have sinned against them. And then bear up with them as the Lord refines them. I always say, and again, I, I say that it's easier to say than to do, so I totally get that. But you've got to be patient with people. And you've got to let the Lord refine people. He's sanctifying them just like he's sanctifying you. And aren't you thankful people are patient with you? Aren't you thankful the Lord is patient with you? And so as they sin against you, be patient and love them. Most of the time, the Lord brings about the convicting without you ever having to open your mouth. But there are times where we need to go to our brother or our sister. But many times these things are resolved by the Lord as your brother or your sister in Christ opens the word and realizes, I never should have said that. I never should have done that, you know? And many times this is what's neat about the Lord is they'll come to you and they'll say, will you please forgive me for this? And you have been ripping them to shreds in your head for the last week and you just feel this big, which is perfect because it just reminds you that the Lord will do his work, and you are a wicked sinner, and praise God, he is patient and kind to you. So, all that being said, in letter C is the example of Christ. We are called to practice selfless humility. Selfless humility. Uh, Philippians 2 is the main verse there, that do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory. It's the exact opposite of James 4. You want to know where conflict comes from you? Or where conflict comes from you? (laughs) Do you want to know where conflict comes from? (laughs) Uh, it's 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 the 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 selfish ambition and the pride that is within us, and so rather than that, he says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely look after your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe how Christ did this. So that's what we're striving for: selfless, humble, sacrificial service and love. So all that being said, like I said, that's kind of the, the big picture. Uh, what, you know, what, what's the difference between God, uh, godly wisdom, earthly wisdom? Uh, what's the source within us James talks about? What's the purpose, the big picture purpose always uh, from the Lord? And now, number four, and this is where we left off last week. We're going to talk about types of conflict. So now we're getting into the actual conflict. So here's what we do when these kind of things arise. Uh, Here's how we handle it. So number four is types of conflict. So I'll slow down. Uh, Well, slow down (laughs) to my standard. (laughs) I'll try to slow down. All right, types of conflict. Letter A, personal differences. Personal differences. 
So when you have personal differences, we're not talking about sin here. We're talking about, I wanted the wall green, but it's blue. You know, I wanted to eat pizza, but we're going for Chinese. Those kind of things. There's, just, there's differences of opinions, differences of preference. The resolution, when there are personal differences within the family, is to show preference. To show preference. I would say, I don't know. I mean, I don't know a percentage, but 90% of the turmoil... In our home, is usually in this category. There's just different preferences, different, different ideas, different feelings, different ways of processing something, you know? Uh, Kenzie and I always talk about how it's usually um, construction projects, you know what I mean? And uh, it's the terminology, it's the outcome, it's everything about it. She, you know, uh, she, she'll say, like, you know, I want, I want, I want uh, crown molding around the top. And I'm like, oh, cool. I take that sentence. I interpret it one way. I begin to do what I think is exactly what she said. She looks at it. And she's like, that is, that is the exact opposite of what I wanted. You know what I mean? And you're just going, but you said, you know, and anyway. So, but again, these are, sometimes it's just preference. Sometimes it's the way it looks. Sometimes it's just a difference of opinion. But personal differences can cause many conflicts. Conflicts can arise out of personal differences and differences of opinion. People are very different from one another. Uh, You probably know this. They have different abilities, different amounts of knowledge, different likes, different dislikes, different perspectives. Having little in common means you must work to know one another well, appreciate one another, and see things from one another's perspective. We talked about a lot of this with the communication stuff. A couple can have a great deal in common and still have conflict if they're proud and selfish. And all that comes from Stuart Scott's little booklet on communication and conflict resolution. And so when there are differences of opinions, differences in interpretation, differences in preferences, when what we're called to do is prefer the other person. Give up what you wanted and love the other person. Romans 12.10 talks about to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So it's not just you're giving them their way. You're, you're desiring to honor them and to prefer them and to give up whatever it is that you thought that you deserved. Again, Philippians 2, 3 through 4, same thing there. Um, you're not looking out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. And then I think one of the biggest verses is Ephesians 5, 21, where the Lord tells us, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Again, it's not just prefer others because that's what you're supposed to do. You need to prefer others out of a fear of Christ and who he is. Christ and his standard of judgment. And the way that he laid down his life for us, and you're unwilling to lay down your preferences for a brother or a sister. You know, that, that ought to be one of those like terrifying moments of, you know, the Lord has given you unending mercy or forgiveness, and you're going to stand and withhold forgiveness or mercy from another person, Matthew 18 or Matthew uh, uh, 6. I mean, those are, those are scary moments. And so again here... We're called to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We're called to prefer one another. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you're still. I mean, you're you're honoring all people, um, and uh, and and you're you're always patient with with everyone, uh, preferring that. Now, if they're you know if they're telling you to sin, or there's like my preference is for you to not go to church. Well, I mean. That's where, that's where you, you say, I, you know, there's something, there's someone greater and, and that I must fear and follow and obey, and I can't do that thing. Does that make sense? So if, if, if you have someone provoking you or, or calling you to compromise either truth or imperative commands from the Lord, I mean, we can't budge on that. Um, but in other situations, I think you, you prefer. Um, I, I would love to get through some of this and answer uh, actual, um, I don't know, uh, examples, you know, that, that might be helpful. Hopefully some of these, as we go through some of these big picture things, it will be helpful. But I, I feel like this is a great Q&A kind of uh, topic because we all have conflict in our life. Every one of us have family members that things are tense, coworkers, things are tense, or, or, or people that are just provoking, and this is helpful. So, I mean, that's a common thing for all of us. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm sure there are many questions. We'll keep moving. You're welcome to ask questions in the middle, but maybe some of those will get answered by the end. All right, so letter B. So, here, so you got personal differences. You just show preference. That's the, that's the, the, the resolution for that. Um, when there is uh, actual sin, someone sins against you, the resolution there is to go and forgive, to go and forgive. 
Um, to go show and forgive, sorry. So, and this comes from Matthew 18. Shane actually just preached about this. Um, but what we must do, uh, and um, where is the reference for this? I don't see the footnote. But uh, it says, we must learn how to respond humbly and graciously, graciously to one another's sin and how to follow God's instruction for speaking truth in love. We must control our response to fit God's rules of communication and the proper handling of sin. So if someone sins against you, your job is to go to the person uh, to show in the sense of, one, they may not even know they have sinned against you. Two, if they're a child of God, they're going to desire to reconcile the relationship. And it may just take, the, you know, it's uh, the person who, who is feeling that pressure that needs to go. Um, and you're, you're showing them for the purpose of reconciliation. Again, this is what Matthew 18 is all about. And you must forgive. You cannot go to anyone if you have not already both prepared your heart and your mind, pulled the log out of your own eye, and you're going into the fight to forgive. Does that make sense? If you're going in there just to show them you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian, you should never do this, you don't have the right or the ability to go to the person if you're still in that place. And again, there's many principles here uh, to, to, to think through. But like I said, I mean, you've got you to gotta think of the patience, kindness, mercy, that the Lord shows you, you got to examine your own heart and go, okay, what have I done that may have provoked them to sin against me in this way, pulling the log out of your own eye, all that. And, and you're at this place where you're like, well, there's no matter what, he and I or she and I, we are going to be reconciled and we must love one another. Now you're ready to go. Does that make sense? So there may be some heart preparation. A lot of people look at Matthew 18 and they think it gives them license to go and point out everyone's sin. And I used to tell the kids, I don't need you to point out my sin. I'm not saying that in a proud way. The Lord sent you to point out my sin. I'm thankful for the church. I, I do need that in that sense. But most of the, many times, people that are good at pointing out other people's sins are blind to the, the things that everyone else can see in them. You know, It's usually the proud people that are going around being, well, they're proud, and they're proud, and they're proud, and they're proud. <laughs> the selfish people are like, they're so selfish, and they're so selfish. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just how it works. Um, I remember talking to a person one time that struggled with immorality and, and uh, struggled with, I mean, you know, they're being immoral. And, and their assumption is, well, because that's what they're struggling with, everybody else is too, you know? And again, sin is common to man. But many times the proud person thinks that whatever their fight is, everybody is neck deep in that sin. And because of that, they stand in judgment over their brothers. You got to be careful of that. Um, and you got to pull the log out of your own eye, be patient, kind, merciful, forgiving. Then you can go. And talk to your brother. That's what Matthew 18 is about. It, yes. Uh, well, yeah. Here we're talking about. Well, I mean, you would forgive an unbeliever as well. Yeah. Oh, totally. And we'll talk about that, too. You can't reconcile a relationship on your own. Uh, you can forgive somebody, and, and you can have nothing in your heart against them and not be embittered towards them. And they may hate you to the day you die. There's nothing you can do about that. So, I mean, like, you can't control the mind and heart of another person. Um, and uh, so, I mean, but, but like we've already talked about that with the peace thing last week. Uh, as far as it is dependent upon you, you must be at peace with all people. Like, so you can't stand in judgment or be embittered towards or have un, uh, unreconciled stuff in your mind against someone else. But, I mean, if you've gone to your brother, you've said, hey, I want to work this out, and they're like, no, you're, uh, I hate you, and I'm going to continue to hate you, then you just you, you say to them, well, I love you, and I'll continue to love you. And, I mean, that's all you can do in a situation like that. I mean, sometimes the Lord softens someone. Sometimes that only hardens them more, you know? So, again, you, you can't control what the Lord's doing in somebody else's heart. And many times the Lord is using even you and your presence and your words to harden another person's soul, and that's not in your control. So remember that. We're not talking about if you do these things, you'll reconcile all relationships. If you do these things, go back to 1 Corinthians 11. One of the things that might happen is the Lord, through that conflict, reveals who does and doesn't belong to him. Again, we talked about that. We saw that in our church in the last... You know, five years ago, where we had a group of people through conflict that the Lord brought out of our midst and, and revealed things about their character and their interactions that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to see outside of the conflict. 
And, but the Lord does the same thing to me all the time. There's things in me that I don't see until the pressure comes on. And all of a sudden, the fangs come out, you know, and it's like, and you go, oh, I am, I am a devil, you know, I'm wicked, you know, and you got to, but you wouldn't have seen it without the circumstance. So just remember that. This is not that you can go reconcile with everyone. You must, but they may not return that. But we're talking about you here. This is about you. What do you do when someone sins against you? Because everybody in here is saying that they're Christians. Everybody in here is saying that they love the Lord. So if you say you're a Christian, you say you belong to Christ, well, if someone sins against you, you must go, you must reveal in the sense of striving to, to, to make things right and show what, what's happened, what is the sin, and you must forgive. Again, Matthew 18 talks about that. The whole purpose of Matthew 18 is to, is to bring the person back to that relationship with Christ or that walk with Christ or that re- uh, reconciliation with one another. Your whole purpose is for the, per- for the person to be reconciled to the Lord. It really even has nothing to do with you, if you want to say it that way. The reason we go after people that are walking in sin is because we want them to be right with Christ, to know Christ, to, to honor Him. That's what you're going for. Colossians 3, same thing. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So that's the heart right there. You want to go and show your brother your sin? Well, you're doing it with humility, gentleness, patience, kindness, bearing with their sin, even if this happens 20 more times. You're ready. You know, I mean, you might go to them, reconcile the relationship. The next week, they do the same thing. That's fine. That's a great path to be on. Those are hard friendships, but they're good friendships because they challenge you and test you and press you towards Christ's likeness. But the heart there is, I must forgive them in the same way the Lord's forgiven me. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So remember, think about that. That is always what drives me to forgive other people, is when you think about the fact that God sent his son to die for you, that there is unending forgiveness for an unending amount of sin, and, and, and that's all because of his love, mercy, and grace. Well, then how can anyone ever do anything where you're like, you know what? No, you crossed the line here, and my forgiveness has met its end. That's terrifying for a, as a thought for a Christian I mean, you're going to wrestle with it. There are going to be times where you just feel like, oh, how could they? You know, but it's like, but then you think, oh, how could I? You know, and what has he done for you? So you must forgive. Now, Matthew 6, again, forgive others their transgressions, or your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That ought to make you tremble. If you are born again, if you're alive, and you read Matthew 6, 14 through 15, it doesn't make you shake. There's something wrong. Check your pulse, right? I mean, that ought to make you tremble. There's nothing anyone can do to you that you ever have any right to not forgive them. Again, they may hate you. They may not reconcile with you. But you can't stand in judgment against them and withhold forgiveness when God has given you unending forgiveness. Matthew 7 talks about it as well. Don't judge so you will not be judged. And the way that you judge, you'll be judged. And the standard of measure that you use, it'll be used to you. In other words... Don't you want to stand before Christ and he gives you perfect, unceasing, unending mercy, grace, kindness, patience, and love? If you want anything less than that, I mean, then, oh, I mean, let me say it this way, uh, that we want that. The last thing we want is Christ to judge us by the standard of measurements that we judge our brothers and sisters. That would be awful. That would be terrifying. So stop that. Pull the log out of your own eye. That's what this whole thing, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think the reason he says it that way is because that's always where we're at. Usually when you can see someone else's sin, and it's because they offended you. Not, not like, you know, they, they just cheated on their spouse and you just are their friend and you're just going to talk to them. You know what I mean? But, I mean, they hurt you. They've sinned against you. They violated you in some way. And you feel like it's your time to go talk to them about their sin. That could be true. And you must go to your brother. But you've got to get the log out of your eye, which is usually that judgment, that anger, that bitterness, that feeling of like, I'm better than you and I never would have done that to you. That stuff, you've got to get out of that. That's, that's way greater than the thing that you're going to talk to them about. So anyway, 
So if, there, if someone has sinned against you, you are the offended party, then you must go reconcile, forgive. Does that make sense? Go show them the sin and forgive. Like I, I shouldn't use the word reconcile. You may not be able to reconcile. That depends on, on, their, on their receiving it. Do you bring everything up? So this is a good point that comes from that. Because, again, think about, let's go back to the home. It's easy to get outside that. Like, let's think about the home. Your wife's going to sin against you every day. Your husband's going to sin against you every day. Your children are going to sin against you every day. How many times do you forgive? Unending. Do you go and show them everything, every single time? No. That would destroy anyone. I mean, goodness gracious. You already, again, if the other person belongs to Christ, they're having unending conviction as well. And the last thing they need to do is be like, hey, you sinned again, you sinned again, you sinned again, you sinned again, you sinned again. I mean, at some point, <laughs> that's not going to turn out well. First uh, Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Many things will just be covered in love. Most things, honestly, especially within the home, can be covered in love. Now, sometimes we're covering something in love and simultaneously growing in bitterness. <laughs> That's not the same thing. If, you, if, if, if you're keeping a list, you're like, there it is again. I'm going to cover it in love. There it is again. I'm going to cover it in love. There it is again. I'm going to cover it. In... That's not covering in love. That's just you're probably afraid to do the, the right thing, which is go and talk about it, you know. Um, so uh, covering in love means you don't bring it up. Covering in love means it's as if it didn't happen after that. Covering in love is going, I, I've done the same thing a thousand times, and God forgives me. I'm going to forgive them. Covering in love looks like that. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 19, it is his glory. A, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So remember that. Many of these things, when you are offended, sinned against, and all that, if you pull the log out, a lot of times you're like, there's no need to talk. That was all on me. I love this person, you know, and you just cover it in love. So when do you go and show? This is, this, this is a good guideline here. First, when it is clearly a sin issue, it's not a preference issue. It's actual sin. It's not just I got hurt. I mean, there is actual sin that has taken place, and you're actually more concerned about the soul of that person than you are about your own, you know, honor or whatever it may be. You need to go to the person when there's sin. Uh, when it's something that is uh, impeding their spiritual growth. So this is some, some habit, something in their life that is keeping them from maturity, keeping them from growing in Christ. We do that. We go to one another. I mean, this is happening in the church all the time. Many times this person's coming to you asking, but sometimes you have to go to that person. When it's something that's, uh, that is public knowledge and is harming their testimony for Christ. Sometimes it's something in their life. They may see it. They may not see it. But it's becoming uh, uh, prevalent or, or other people are, are beginning to see this thing. And it's causing them to either look like a hypocrite or people are wondering, do they actually belong to Christ? Well, I mean, a, a brother or sister would go to the person and say, hey, listen, you've got to get a handle on this thing, you know, and, and talk to them. When it's leading other people to sin, so they are now provoking someone else to sin. And again, as a brother or sister, you go to them and, and you talk to them about that. Or it's when it's hindering your relationship with them. There's actual conflict, and, and you, you have that weight of, I must be at peace. I have to reconcile. So you go to your brother or your sister to talk to them. So that's when you go and you show someone their sin. Letter C. So here's the other side of it. When you sin against someone else, they sin against you, you go, you show, you forgive. Now, you're the one that has brought about the sin or the conflict. What do you do? The resolution there is to confess your sin, repent of that sin, and ask for forgiveness. So again, I tell married couples this all the time. We're standing up there and we're doing the wedding and all that. Marriage is an unending process of asking for forgiveness and forgiving over and over and over and over and over. And think about it. Every single time you do both of those things, you're becoming more like Christ. Every time you do that and you, do, you actually forgive and you ask for forgiveness, you're growing in humility, you're growing in Christ-likeness. Matthew 5.23 is, is a great, it's another one of those weighty verses. Remember if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come present your offering. In other words, you can't worship God when you have unresolved conflict between you and another Christian. You've got to go resolve that. Now, again, you could go to the brother, and the brother says, forget you. Can't do anything about that. But it can't be on you that the, conf that the, that the, the conflict is still there. Does that make sense? And, and, and don't fool yourself into thinking 
that you're, you're worshiping the Lord with a pure heart when you have something in your heart against a brother. Again, these things are going to happen. I doubt there's ever been a day where we've walked into this church and we've worshiped God with an absolute pure heart, any of us. But we're striving for that at all times. So if you know of it, if the Lord brings it up in your mind and you know, I need to go to this person, then do it. And that may mean walk out of the worship service and give them a call. That may mean, you know, you, you text them and you say, hey, listen, I'm so sorry. I'm at church right now, but I wanted to write you and tell you we need, a, we need to talk and we need, a, we need a, to work on this, whatever it may be. But don't, don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're right with God when you're wrong with someone else. Does that make sense? Now, again, there are times, just make sure you hear, I said it a thousand times, where you can't resolve it because of the other party, but that's not on your shoulders. Does that make sense? The Lord can cause that to happen. And again, actually, that's, that's the, the lot of the Christian, right? I mean, you will be hated because of me, he says. They treated me this way. What do you expect them to do to you? So, I mean, just being a Christian means a life of conflict because of a sinful world around us. Um, but it shouldn't be us that's stirring up and provoking that conflict. We are peacemakers. Um, so, like it says here, we must be, do you have two blanks there? Quick to forgive and quick to ask for forgiveness. So always think of it that way. In the home, with your children, with your spouse, whoever it may be in the church, we must be quick to forgive and quick to ask for forgiveness. Ephesians 4 talks about that, not letting the sun go down in your anger, not giving the devil opportunity. When we're slow to do what is right, we're just opening ourselves up to either growing in bitterness and, and judgment or being a, a tool to be used by Satan um, and, to, and to undermine the, the name of Christ. All right, next page is principles of conflict resolution. Principles of conflict resolution. And letter A, and th- this is getting into just practice. I mean, now we're into like the what do you do, you know, just very practical stuff. Uh, letter A is the guidelines for preventing conflicts. So, you're in a relationship, there's a lot of turmoil. What are some things you can do to prevent many conflicts? Or even if you're not in the relationship of turmoil, you just, you're striving for, for peace. Uh, first is believe the best about others until you have facts to prove otherwise. You may think, you could, you know, they, they acted kind of funny this morning, and you're like, well, what were, is there something wrong? You know, it's like, until you get facts, until you know there's something, just assume, I mean, they could have, like, they could have woken up with a headache, you know? They could have had, there could be something, they could be fighting sin in their own heart or mind. It may have nothing to do with you. So don't always be so proud to think people are always thinking about you. You know what I mean? It's like, first thing, just believe the best until you have some reason to, to know. Seek to know your spouse well, appreciate, understand their perspective, or you can fill in the blank with anything there, but know the person, uh, especially with a spouse. Make sure you have all the facts. Number four, listen carefully and learn. Ask clarifying questions. Sometimes it's just because you haven't communicated well, and that can prevent many conflicts. Uh, number five, develop and use diffusing statements. I have those listed on the last page, um, and they came from, uh, uh, actually it comes from our premarital uh, stuff that we give to, to couples, uh, and they're really good. And it's really just ways to, to, to be slow, to think, to speak, and to clarify so that you're not making assumptions and judgments that lead to further conflict. Pray, study, think about the issue before speaking. Determine if you should go or if you should overlook, you know. Maybe, maybe, you know, can love cover? Well, then let it, you know. Um, or do you need to go? There's actual sin. Letter B, guidelines for resolving conflicts. Guidelines for resolving conflicts. So the conflict has happened. There is sin. You must go to the brother or sister um, and, uh, or your spouse. So number one, state the problem from a biblical perspective. This is something we always encourage. We, do, we try to do this in our family. We encourage young couples to do this. Call things what they are biblically because then it helps you to have clarity on how to handle it biblically. Does that make sense? It's not mean you got to walk around talking like a Puritan, but it would probably be better if you did, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> use biblical. So if you're like, that person pushes my buttons. Well, there's no Bible verse that talks about pushing buttons, you know. So it's like, how do you, how do you handle that? But, but if you say, that person provokes me, I'm driven to anger well, there's many things, many places you can go in Scripture that cuts right to the heart of that. You know? So use biblical terminology both in identifying your own sin and in going to reconcile because then both of you know how to work with that. Does that make sense? It just is very helpful. Um, identify the type of sin and the appropriate description. 
uh, decide what things faults can be confessed. Assume responsibility for your contribution to the problem. Again, this is pulling the log out of your own eye. Go ask for forgiveness for each thing you did specifically and discuss your plan not to do those things again. In other words, that's just confessing. It's a great, okay, this is what the Lord says. I did that thing. I'm going to strive to love you instead. And the reason that helps is uh, we, we always say, actually, it's, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about that in a second. Search the scriptures. Uh, let the word inform and convict and help shape the, the um, resolution. Share what biblical changes you're willing to make. Um, uh, to each resolution. If a, pr- a problem cannot be resolved in a month, seek outside counsel. Again, there's nothing magical about a month. It's just saying you're working on it. You're both striving for unity or for reconciliation, but there's something that is preventing that. That's, the, that's why you have the body of Christ. So go and talk to someone about that. I think we talked about that before. You don't have to talk to everybody about everything, and you don't have to talk to anybody about everything, but you need to have somebody that you can go to and talk about things. Uh, that's what the church is built for. And many people get into big predicaments because they have this idea of, well, I just don't want to bother people with my sin, or we're a private family. And it's like, that can be a big problem. If it's hindering you from seeking the, the, the help and the counsel that the Lord has built the church to bring into your life, we are called to edify one another, encourage one another, and admonish one another, all of that in patience. And if you, by being secretive, are withholding information that then prevents you from receiving the love that Christ has ordained the church to bring, that's a, that's a problem. Does that make sense? So again, you don't, you don't need to get on Facebook and post all your stuff. That's foolish. You don't need to go telling everybody everything. That's foolish. Because um, you can get a lot of foolish counsel from foolish people. But you need to have men or women in your life that you know you can go to when this thing crops up again or when you have conflict in the marriage and you can talk to them and, and they can just help you see things that you just aren't seeing yourself. So, again, seek counsel. Letter C, how to seek forgiveness. I think this is gold. The popular pattern is saying, I'm sorry, but this is good. It leaves the issue undefined. Uh, it leaves the offended person wondering if you actually know what you did, you know, um, and it, it doesn't involve both individuals in the reconciliation. I guess not like those are like evil words. I mean, I say I'm sorry often, but, but not, not in an, an opportunity of reconciliation because that, that, that just doesn't cut it. Uh, saying I'm sorry, I mean, you could be sorry because you got caught. You could be sorry because the other person found out. You could be sorry because of a, a multitude of things. That doesn't necessarily mean you realize that you sinned against the person, offended them, broke a relationship there, and you're hoping to reconcile it. Uh, so it's basically saying, try to get those words out of your vocabulary when it comes to forgiving and, uh, and seeking forgiveness. The biblical pattern would be something like this. Will you forgive me for offending you? Will you forgive me for lying to them about you? Will you forgive me for thinking evil thoughts in my head and standing in judgment over you? Because what you're doing is not only confessing what you did as sinful, but you're calling the other person now to the table and saying, you have a part in this too. I I know I've sinned. I'm wrong. And will you forgive me for fill in the blank? Now the other person, like I said, that that asking for forgiveness may produce the humility in the other person that the Lord is actually working towards. It may open the eyes of, of that person to something they didn't even see in their heart until you said that. No matter what, it provides the platform for forgiveness, reconciliation, love, and unity. So that's why you say it that way. Forgiveness is something you have to receive. Asking for forgiveness is not a matter of personal opinion. It's not just, you know, I didn't like it when you did this thing to me, you know? You're going and you're saying, no, I sinned against you, and will you please forgive me? Letter D, how to grant forgiveness. How to grant forgiveness. This is the other side of it. Forgiveness is an agreement with the one who offended you, not to, this is what forgiveness looks like. And again, Test your love and your forgiveness with these kind of things. Number one, true forgiveness does not dwell on the offense in your mind. When you've forgiven, it's over. You're not just going to walk around just being like, I still can't believe it. I forgive them, but I can't believe they did that. That's not forgiveness. You know, or I've heard this one so many times, and I've probably said it myself in a past life, but... But I've forgiven him in my heart, but I don't want to be around him. You know, it's like, well, if you've forgiven him in your heart which is the, like Tim said, the control and mission center of your, who you are, 
Well, then you should have no problem talking to them, seeing them, and hanging out with them. You know, they may be difficult for sure, but if there's true forgiveness, then you got no problem with them. Um, so it might take work when you see them. you got to prepare yourself to, whew, this is a hard relationship. I'm going to love them. But, uh, but if you've forgiven somebody, well, then you can easily sit down with them and have a great conversation because that's what forgiveness looks like. Um, don't bring up the offense to them or to others. So if you've forgiven them, there's no reason to go tell somebody else about it. If you've forgiven them, there's no reason to bring it up again the next time they do it. Well, you said you, you, you asked for forgiveness last time. Well, and they're asking for forgiveness again, so keep forgiving them. Just keep forgiving them. That's what we do, right? right? Peter said to Jesus, how many times do I forgive a brother when he offends me? Seven times? He says, no, seven times seven. The only way you ever get tested in the amount of forgiveness you're willing to grant is to be sinned against in the same way over and over and over and over by the same person. And, and again, you think Peter's crazy. You're like, seven times. Come on, Peter. Let's see you forgive somebody seven times. Like, and just think about that. The same person doing the same thing to you again and again and again, and every time asking for forgiveness. And how quick will it take you to go? They're just a hypocrite. They don't mean it. They say it all the time, but they don't mean it. That's what we do, right? But 70 times 7, it's a test of you. Just as much or more than it is a test of them. And use the off- don't ever use the offense against them in the future. Um, this comes from Ken Sandy's Peacemaker book. To forgive someone means to release them from liability uh, uh, to suffer punishment or penalty. Forgiveness is undeserved. It can't be earned. Forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's pers- uh, sin and release that person from liability or punishment. Uh, this is precisely what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. I mean, there's a good point. Uh, he secured our forgiveness by taking on himself the full penalty, penalty of our sins. Again, not that you can do that, but you can take someone's sin and not return evil and, and love them and continue to take that, that sin. Um, and remember what he did to purchase our forgiveness. And that should be the greatest incentive to release others from the penalty that they deserve. Um, where are we at? Okay. Letter E, the goal of conflict resolution. The goal is always restoration of the relationship. Again, God's got bigger goals. Sanctification, glorification, all those things. You, when it's conflict between you and someone else, the, the goal that you're aiming at is a restoration of the relationship. You're not just telling them their sins and then hoping that they (laughs) don't ever see you again. You're not just there to inform them of what they do wrong. You're actually going in it hoping to reconcile this relationship because that brings glory to Christ. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Again, probably tempted to not do this, this job of reconciling or to, to be embittered or whatever it may be. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we're called to do. Luke 15 uh, gives all the different parables about when a sinner repents, that there's joy in heaven. It brings the Lord joy when a sinner repents. And it would bring the Lord joy for you to go to a brother or sister in Christ and reconcile that relationship when there is sin especially within the marriage. Letter F, the four G's of conflict resolution or resolving conflict. This comes directly from Ken Sandy's material. I think I told you about that last week. The, the Peacemaker book is a great book. It's a whole book on, on all of this stuff and gives you very practical examples. And um, it's, it's, it's good. But, uh, but he says this. Here's the four things that always need to be in view when resolving conflict. Number one is glorify God. That's why you're doing it. You must go. You must make peace. You must strive for reconciliation because that's what will bring glory to the Lord. Number two, get the log out of your own eye. Again, these are things we've already talked about, but you've got to glorify the Lord. You get the log out of your own eye. Number three, gently restore. We just read that from Galatians 6, um, that you're, you're striving to gently restore. Um, and and uh, number four is go and be reconciled. So that's kind of a good, you know, alliteration kind of way to think. Okay, glorify God, get the log out of my eye, gently restore, now I can go. And uh, that's just a good way to, to think about it. And then letter G, letter G, unbiblical ways to deal with conflict. I know you're going to see yourself in this. We've all done some of these things, and some of us are well-practiced in some of these things. Um, 
but I'm going to kind of go through these quick. Do you have blanks on every one of them? Whew. All right. Number one, giving in without seeking to resolve the conflict. Uh, this option, giving in. So you're going to give in to the person, whatever it is, I just give them what they want. Um, this option is used by a person who would rather give in to a wrong solution than seek to resolve the conflict in a biblical fashion. Giving in is peacekeeping, not peacemaking. That's a good thing to think of. There's many people that were like, oh, they're so gentle, they're so patient, but they just give in. They just get, you know, they got a spouse that, that is, is very provoking, either the husband or the wife. Many times this is a huge, I mean, the way I've seen this many times is you have a wife that is very strong-willed, a wife that just wants her way, and a husband to just try to keep peace in the family just keeps giving her whatever she wants, tells the kid just give mom what she wants, and uh, just gives her whatever she wants. It doesn't bring true peace or unity. All it does is just it causes, it, it causes the, the, the family to you know, be stepping on eggshells and, and be afraid of what's going to happen if they actually uh, dive into the conflict. And it doesn't have a very high view of the person either. You're not concerned about their soul. You're not concerned about where continual pride and selfishness leads to. All you're concerned about is just having a little peace in the family for a little while. And you're willing to let this person keep on sinning without ever talking to them about it and giving them what they want just because you don't want to deal with what would happen if you did the right thing. So don't do that. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I've heard, I, think, uh, I think Ken Sandy, again, has a, a book called that, like Peace Faking. There's some, I can't remember the, the terminology. So Peace Faking, Peace Something, and Peacemaking. Um, but yes, that's right. So it's, it's a fake peace. It's not real peace. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just trying to avoid turmoil by acting like... And it kind of leads into number two. Ignoring the problem... Or pretending it never happened. Again, easy on the front end, bad effects on the, the back end. If you ignore the problem or pretend it never happened, uh, people, uh, this adoption pretends the problem doesn't exist and responds in a way that does not solve the conflict biblically. Uh, many uh, ignore an issue by attempting to hide it, to cover it up, to make excuses, to shift blame, to run from the conflict. This may include leaving the house, ending a friendship, quitting a job, filing for divorce, or, or changing churches. So you're willing to change big things in life because you're just unwilling to head into the conflict to strive for resolution. Um, this way of attempting to solve problems goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden uh, when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And there's an outline of ignoring the problem uh, at the end of the notes. Number three, winning at all costs. So this might be the other side other extreme, other you can ignore and give in and pretend it doesn't happen, or you fight to the you're going to fight to get whatever it is that you want, uh, and that's how you're going to win the conflict. This option desires to be right or to win at whatever cost to the relationship. And again, we have people like this in our life. Um, some people are so determined to win the argument, they will do whatever it takes to make other people see their way and to give them their way. I mean, and they'll use biblical passages, it's always, I mean, within the church, there's always a multitude of Bible verses they'll throw at you to show you that their way is God's way, and you need to conform to their way. Um, people always fight in selfish means through holy terminology, you know what I mean? Uh, and so, again, just because they're quoting Bible verses doesn't make it right, you know? It's like, first thing, examine those verses, see if they're out of context. Secondly, uh, you know, usually a lot of the people that fight for the holiness of the church, are unwilling to love their brother. You know what I mean? Uh, many people, now again, we, we, we're striving for holiness in the body of Christ. So I'm just saying, it usually comes in religious garb. People that want to fight and want to produce conflict within a marriage, within the home, within the church, uh, if, they're, if they're well taught, they'll use spiritual terminology to cover coat their, their pride and selfishness. So don't be fooled by the words. Look at what's being produced in the heart and in the life. This is the my way or the highway mentality. Uh, this way of silencing the other party is driven by pride, selfishness, arrogance, and obstinance. Number four, letting time heal it. Now, again, time is a good thing, but time alone doesn't heal anything. Time is time, right? I mean, time just passes. Time can harden. Time can cause bitterness to grow. Uh, time really can't do that. You're doing that. It just takes time to do it, <laughs> right? So you just need time to grow embittered. And, and, and reconciliation does take time, but it takes doing things in that time. Does that make sense? So forgiveness can happen over time. Healing can happen over time if there's a pursuit of healing in that time period. But if you're both just sitting over here not doing anything, time is not magic. 
Time is time. So don't just go, time heals, time reveals. I mean, yes, the Lord does use time to reveal things, and the Lord does use time to heal relationships. But you have an imperative command to be a part of that process of healing, Does that make sense? or part of that process of reconciling. And so time alone doesn't do anything. Um, and he, actually, this is a good point. Healing alone will not honor God. Confession, forgiveness, and repentance take time to do that. That's what will restore the relationship on our God. Number five, trying to bury it or shelve it. Again, we do this all the time. Sometimes it's a matter of just time. It's like, I can't deal with this right now. I'm just going to put it over here. And, and then, but we just never go back. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, then, and then things can boil and, and get bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, now we're not even talking to our spouse. Um, and so putting off resolving conflict and reconciling the relationship is not an option. We talked about that from Ephesians 4 where he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. You, you want to dive into it as soon as possible. Sometimes it does take some time to, to begin that process. But don't just put it over here and be like, I'll deal with that in five years. A person who lives this way will most likely accumulate many unresolved issues. That's what happens. We put that on a shelf, and then we put this on a shelf, and then we put this on a shelf. And all of a sudden, we're looking at the shelf, and we're like, oh, no. You know, and we got conflict everywhere. Or we bury all these things, and all of a sudden, they just they creep back. Um, and so... Uh, I think we have that buried issues will usually unearth themselves with future events. The Lord will stir it up, especially if you're a child of God. Something else will happen down the road, and you'll have to pull it back up. Does that make sense? The Lord will pull it out of you um, because he wants you to be holy. Um, So the Lord will always press against our unwillingness to deal with something biblically. If you're a child of God, the, the, the pressure will come at some point, which will force you to go, will you please forgive me? Force you to go to the person and go, I was wrong. Will you please, you know, so. Number six, waiting for the other person to initiate the resolution process. They'll never do that. This approach is in direct violation of God's command to go and seek to resolve any problem, Matthew 5. So again, you can't, you can't sit there and be right with God when you're like, well, I'm not going until they come to me. They need it. They're the one that sinned. They need to come to, if you're, if you feel that way, well, then you're offended in judging them. Like, it, at this point, now it's up to you. They may not even know they sinned against you. Have you thought about that? I mean, I, like, there are times where you can be walking down the hall and you forget to say hi to someone and that person is offended. You have no idea it even occurred. And they're just sitting there going, how could they call themselves a Christian? They saw me at Costco and didn't even say hey. You know what I mean? And it's like, I mean, like, you can't. They may not have even seen you. You need to go to them. So don't just wait for the other person to initiate the process. Um, if, yeah, and then it just quotes uh, Matthew 5. And then First uh, John, John 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. So remember, it's like that. It's the same. If you're not right with someone else, you can't be right with God. Um, and again, not, I'm not saying it's on their end to reconcile. I'm saying you got something in your heart against them. You can't come to the Lord and worship. Number seven, punishing the other person until they change or take the blame. People often do various things to punish their spouse until they change or assume the blame for something. They may give them the silent treatment. They may be harsh with them. They may even leave. This method of dealing with conflict is only heaping sin upon sin. The next page is the whole, I told you, like, uh, again, I got this from Building Marriages God, God's Way. It just takes Genesis 3 to show you how Adam and Eve did the opposite of what they should have done in that situation. And if you look at it, you're like, I do that all the time. I mean, these are things that we do. Um, and then on the very back are just helpful questions. And those, the things that we referred to earlier, the uh, 20 statements to diffuse an argument. Again, I got that out of building marriages God's way. But helpful questions to ask when there is conflict. And again, this just helps get you to the right place. And it's all the stuff we've talked about in this lesson. The first two things to ask, I think, helps get you to the place you need to be to resolve conflict. First, where is God in this conflict? God's allowed it. There's a purpose for it. Why has God done it? And how is this for your good? If you start there, that you're going to be heading right down the path towards good conflict resolution. Because you're realizing the, the big picture principles. God is in control of all things. This is for my good. This is going to glorify him if I walk through this right. He's purposes for a reason. There's a reason that person said it. There's a reason this all happened. And if you're doing like that, then you're, you're thinking like uh, big picture thoughts, and it gets you away from personal offense. What is God trying to teach me in the conflict? What can I do differently to make it easier to solve the conflict? Look at it. First two are about God, and then after that, it's all about you. It doesn't say anything about the other person. 
So why is God allowing this? What's the big picture? And then me, 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 me. What have I done wrong? How could I have been contributing to this? How have I communicated in an ungodly way? Have I jumped to conclusions? Am I really seeking to understand their perspective? Am I more focused on changing the person uh, involved in the conflict than on God changing me? Am I focused on serving others or being served in this situation? So again, those are all just good questions to ask when being offended or when you are offended, when you're hurt and things like that. But like I said, I know that was a ton. Uh, it's just, this is something, like I said, we're all walking through. We're walking through this in our marriages. We're walking through this with our children and our families. We're walking through this with uh, extended family. We're walking through this at work. And we're walking through this as a church. We go to a wonderful church. There are godly people in this church that love and fear the Lord. And you are going to be sinned against by many of them. So expect that. And those are all wonderful opportunities to express and show the love that Christ has shown you. The last thing you want to do is be like, like I said, which is what we easily jump to, is how could they say that? They say that they're a Christian, and then they treated me like that? It's like, again, you got to go, well, praise the Lord. (laughs) Now, what are you going to do to reconcile that relationship and to love that person and bear up with them? All right, let me pray for us.